0: So we're moving to the second um, part of our talk, Con- concentrating our minds now on-, on Ruth in particular. And of course, we've got significant links, haven't we, to other Gentile brides. Just think for a moment what Matthew tells us in the first chapter, that Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar. And if you think back to Tamar, you'll remember that she was a Gentile. Um, and Salman, the is of Rahab. And of course, Rahab, we remember from Jericho, and she was the mother of Boaz. So there are strong links to Gentile um, brides in uh, the line of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the line of David, the king. So anybody know the meaning of the name Ruth? Well, it's it's quite amazing um, that the old English word used in Wycliffe's translation in Judges reads, that Israel served the Lord, which had ruth on the wretchedness of them. And that word ruth is an old English word which means compassion. Again, in Matthew, in the, um, in the same Wycliffe translation, Jesus saw the people and had ruth on them. He had compassion on them. And today we're much more familiar with the opposite, that of being ruthless. That is, without pity or without compassion on others. So we've got a word that's come down into our English language that comes directly from the book that we're considering today. And so when we think about Ruth, we could think about the opposite of being ruthless, somebody who is totally compassionate and totally selfless in her life and in her attitude. So the book of Ruth. Well, it's not the only Old Testament book with a genealogy, but it is the only one with the genealogy in its closing verses. And as we suggested in the first part, the content of the genealogy may be the whole reason that the book of Ruth was written, to bring us to the point that God is ruling in the kingdoms of men, that God's overarching hand is at work to bring about his purpose, and to ensure that a redeemer is brought to bear through Ruth. So the last word of the final verse of this book is David and since the story of Ruth took place during the period of the judges when there was no king in Israel the appearance of David's name at the end is surely noteworthy and significant so this four chapter drama leans forward the events were not reported for their own sake but for us so that we could see God's hand at work his great purpose in this uh, bringing about of the line of the Lord Jesus Christ The book of Ruth tells a story that ends in chapter four, yet is still heading somewhere. It narrates how that Moabite, Ruth, met an Israelite, Boaz, how their marriage ensued, and the continuation of Naomi's family line and inheritance is finalised. And you'll note, as we read through the book of Ruth, that she's often called Ruth the Moabitess, until the very last and the last chapter. But the book is more than an immediate relief for the main family. The coming together of Boaz and Ruth is a result of God's providence. The ways of providence, the book by Brother Robert Roberts, is really interesting about the way in which there needs to be an understanding and appreciation of the way that God works in the lives of people. And as we go through life, sometimes we can't see his hand at work. But looking back afterwards, we might, like perhaps Naomi, recognise that God was doing things and bringing her to a point where the Lord Jesus Christ, through the line of David, would come about. So from their line comes David, and in full of time, David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus. So what we find when we look at Ruth in particular, is that person with a devout devotion to Naomi. Naomi, having lost her own husband and her sons, decides to move back to Bethlehem. And Ruth's love for Naomi and for Naomi's God is an amazing and key part of this account because it speaks to us of the way in which we as Gentiles need to echo the love that Ruth has. The love that Ruth has for Naomi, who is a type or a, a figure of natural Israel, and for her God, for Israel's God. So we're constantly being reminded that Ruth was a Moabite. She was now moving. Judah as a Gentile how would she be received and the account is silent about that isn't it and yet we know that in Bethlehem Boaz's own mother who may still have been alive Rahab was a Gentile who was assimilated into the tribes of Israel and we can think about um, Rahab for a moment we can think about how difficult that may have been for her to come into the tribes of Israel, to be accepted, to marry an Israelite. And uh, that's that's another story for another day. But this was a huge change for Ruth. She was committed to Naomi and she wanted to follow after the God of Israel. And yet she was amongst people who regarded her as a stranger. Uh, And that comes out in the very words that she speaks. So making a home and making a life in Bethlehem for Ruth wasn't going to be easy at all. Just imagine being introduced to Naomi's neighbours and they might very well think, well, Naomi's brought a servant with her. And, And very much of what Ruth did for Naomi was that of service. They would have perhaps watched her with suspicion, prejudice. It wasn't. She wasn't going to be accepted straight away by everybody. And the fact that she's often called, and it's repeated, Ruth the Moabitess, that woman from Moab. Watch out for her. Those women in Moab caused Israel problems back in Numbers 25. And yet, here she was, arriving back in Bethlehem, and the first thing that they have to do is to find the old house that Naomi had left, perhaps up to 20 years ago, to open it up, to clean out the cobwebs, to clean out the mice and the rats perhaps and to be able to live in it and would she have had help well Naomi may very well have had help she was well thought of it appears from those women that received her but it's okay Naomi's got a servant she can do all the work may have been the attitude of many opening up and clearing the whole house finding work work and clothes and food You know, all of these things was something that perhaps Ruth may have been thinking of on that journey back. What am I going to do? How am I going to do it? How are we going to, to make a go of this? How am I going to live? How are we going to support ourselves? You remember, Naomi herself said that they've come back empty with nothing. I've lost everything, Naomi said. And so it's not long before Ruth finds work. Gleaning in the fields around Bethlehem. And it could have been the very fields that Naomi had owned. And we could speculate and we can wonder what may have happened to those fields since they left. Would they have been left to lie fallow? Would one of the other re- relatives of Elimelech have worked them? Would even Boaz have been working them, looking after them? But no, it was the fields of Boaz that Ruth was found leaning in. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And notice those words, in whose sight I shall find grace. There's already a belief there that God will guide her into the ways of providence. Guide her to where she can glean the best. And she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And a hap was to light on a part of the field just happened to be. Belonging to Boaz, who just happened to be of the kindred of Elimelech. Of course, Ruth didn't know that at the time, but she was certainly led there. And later on, Naomi recognizes it. And of course, Ruth then is informed of it. So when Boaz finds her cleaning in the fields, he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. Shalom. And they answered, The Lord bless thee. And Boaz said to the servants, Whose damsel is this? Who is this young woman that's working in my fields? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered, it's the Moabitish damsel. It's that woman from Moab that Naomi brought back out of the country of of Moab. And there's almost a little bit of fear, perhaps, apprehension. She's a Moabitish. And Boaz commands the reapers about Ruth have not I charged the young men that they shall not touch thee, he says to Ruth. Uh, And that implies that, without his command to the reapers, that they may have sought occasion to touch her. And he says, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels, drink of that that the young men have drawn, don't be afraid of them. And Ruth is called her daughter, his daughter. Boaz said to Ruth, Hearest thou not my daughter, go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Now there's a number of implications in this. The implication that Ruth was a young woman, that Boaz was a much older man. He could talk to her as my daughter. He was old enough to be, and um, for her to be his daughter. And we don't know much about Boaz, but Surely it was unusual for a man in those times to, uh, to not have a wife and to have children. And again, we can speculate that possibly he had had a wife and she didn't have any children or may even have died in childbearing and he hadn't taken another wife. He would have been, as we might say today, a good catch. He was a wealthy man. He had lots of fields. Who was going to inherit him? if he didn't leave an heir. And he had no intention, surely, when he first set his eyes upon Ruth of marrying her, but he did care for her. And that care may very well have come from the fact that his mother, who possibly and probably had fallen asleep by now, but Rahab, the harlot, had taught him not to be prejudiced and to be caring for other people of any nationality. And our mind goes forward, doesn't it, to the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching of the good Samaritan and the way in which the Samaritan who fell amongst these, or rather the Israelite that fell amongst these, was helped by a Samaritan and the way in which Jesus taught us not to be prejudiced. Let thine eyes be on the field that they reap, and go thou after them, says Boaz to her. And he had already told the men to leave extra grain for her to pick up. So at that, what was Ruth's reaction? Well, she bowed herself to the ground and she said, Why have I found grace in thine eyes? That thou should take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger. And again, those words, seeing I am a stranger, tells us perhaps the way in which she hadn't been accepted, even though she'd come with Naomi. She hadn't been accepted by the people of Bethlehem they regarded her as a stranger as a foreigner be careful of her and she finds it strange that this man Boaz should be so kind to her why have I found grace in the eyes and Boaz answers it's been fully showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband and how you've left your father and your mother in the land of your nativity back in Moab and you have come unto a people which you don't know, which you didn't know before, heretofore, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. So there's quite a lot in that that passage, isn't there? First of all, it had been fully showed, Boaz. Well, the gossip in Bethlehem from the time that Naomi appeared was something that would have been spoken of by all the people. Boaz probably had servants. The servants probably said, oh, you never guess, you know, Naomi's back, back in the house. And you want to see the difference they've made. They've opened the house and they've cleaned it all out. And that servant goes, she doesn't stop working. She's running about from, from morning to night. And, and, you know, she's really looking after her mother-in-law. She didn't do that. You know, they're not related other than through marriage. The Lord recompense thy work. A full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. And there we think about the overarching wings of the God of Israel, that those that come under them, like Rahab of old, are sheltering under his wings and he will look after them. Not a bird will cleave his nest without God knowing. And so Ruth is being taught now by Boaz. And she says, let me find favour in your, your sight for you comforted me and you've spoken friendly to the, your handmaid though I'm not like one of the other of thine handmaidens though I'm not of your kin though I, I, I'm a foreigner you've spoken to me like I was one of them. Isn't that a, a marvellous thing and we'll be looking some of us at Boaz tomorrow. And Boaz says, Come here at mealtime and, and eat and dip your morsel in vinegar with me. And she sat beside the reapers. And he reached, he passed her the corn and she did eat and she was sufficed and left. And so we think of the words of James. You know, we don't just say be clothed and filled and don't give with all. Here was Boaz providing for her. And I know that uh, in South Wales, we have something in common with their. Uh, with the southeast, And we've recently had a camp opened in um, Penali, in Tenby, of Iranians who've come to live amongst us, just as you have in Folkestone. Um, We're not doing quite as well as you are in Folkestone. I hear that there are about 50 interested um, people interested in the truth in that camp. Nearly all the the camp are attending classes. Uh, And uh, and well done those um, brethren and sisters who are supporting them. in uh, Penali in Tenby, uh, we have, I think, about 16, um, of which there is one brother who's come from East Ham, um, and there are uh, at least three others who have uh, said that they would like to be baptized, which is wonderful news. But we didn't just say to them, be closed and filled, we actually took clothes down to them, providing the things that they needed um, in a cold camp, uh, particularly in this cold, wet weather. So there's a little aside. So Boaz commanded the young men, saying, let her glean even amongst the sheaves and reproach her not. Don't tell her off. Don't uh, push her away. Allow her to, uh, to glean. She needs it. She's looking after her mother-in-law. And in addition, let some extra fall, some of the handfuls, on purpose for her, that she may glean those too. And so she gleaned until even morning to dusk. She beat out that she had gleaned. So we can imagine, can't we? Here she was, back-breaking work, picking up this. And then after she'd finished working, as the sun was setting, she'd have to take it back and she'd have to beat it out. And she beat out an ether of barley. And she took it up and she went into the city. And when her mother-in-law saw what she brought, well, she had received more than sufficient to keep them both from going hungry. And Naomi asked, "Where, where have you been gleaning? And she showed her mother in law and she said, That man you spoke to, well, it's Boaz. He's a kinsman. Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead, hasn't forgotten my Elimelech and my sons. And Naomi said, The man is near of kin unto us. He's one of our next kinsmen. And again, we might notice the detail here. He's one. Of our next kinsman, not the only one, but he's one of. And of course, we know as the story goes on, there is another who is nearer than Boaz. Well, Boaz said unto um, Ruth also, "Thou shalt keep fast by my young men till we've ended the harvest." And Naomi said to Ruth, "It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his maidens, and that they meet you, um, not in any other field. Don't go anywhere else, but keep fast by those maidens until the end of the harvest." And so Ruth continues that work of cleaning in the fields. That it might be well with thee. My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? Our minds go to the way in which that word rest is used. The way in which there is a Sabbath of rest. The way in which Israel were to enter into the land of Canaan that God had given them, that they might have rest from their enemies. The way that later on God gave them rest in the days of, David and Solomon, and yet also the way in which is taken up in Hebrews. If Joshua had given them rest, there would not therefore have been another rest for the people of God, and for you and for me, brethren and sisters. Is not Boaz of our kindred with whom, whose maidens thou wast? Behold, ye winners barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on raiment, and go down to the floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he's done eating and drinking. And then make yourself known. And Ruth said, I will do all that you say. What what an amazing response that is required of Ruth the Gentile. And what an amazing response is required of us as Gentiles coming into that covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we too are able to say all that god says all that jesus says we will do well boaz laboured with his men he was really tired he lay down to sleep in the heap, in the heap of corn and ruth crept in she uncovered his feet and laid her down at the bottom of his uh, sleeping place and at midnight the man was afraid he he knew that somebody was at his feet and there was when he looked a woman lay at his feet who art thou I am Ruth, thine handmaid, she said. Spread your skirt over your handmaid, for you are a near kinsman. And what she's actually asking for is, take me as your own. Make me yours. Marry me, because I'm a kinsman of yours, and you can redeem me and my late husband. And Boaz said, the Lord repay you for all that you've done, A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, under whose wings you trusted. God is taking care of her. We might remember this passage in Ezekiel that is so similar, where God himself talks about spreading his skirt over Israel because of the time of love. And the way in which God covered the nakedness of Israel and the way in which God swore unto Israel and entered into a covenant with them and the way in which God was a husband to Israel, and Israel was their redeemed wife. And perhaps this passage in Ezekiel is looking back to Ruth, back to the way in which Boaz spread his skirt over Ruth and took her as his own. But we're racing ahead. It didn't happen just like that. There was something else that Boaz needed to do. Thou showed more kindness, says Boaz, in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. You didn't go after the young men, the handsome young men. You came to me, says Boaz, this old man. And now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Think about that. Thou art a virtuous woman. And then think about this passage. This passage in Proverbs chapter 31. Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. She rises also while it's night and gives meat to a household. She lays her hands to the spindle and her hands hold the distaff. For all a household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and it is not the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favour is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Now, there are a number of women in Scripture that this could apply to. It could apply equally to Rahab as a virtuous woman who worked willingly, who clothed with scarlet, and whose husband may very well have been known in the gates. But it certainly does apply to Ruth. And perhaps the writer of Ruth also penned these words about Ruth and about Boaz, whose husband was known in the gates and whose work was a praise in the gates. Have you heard about Ruth? Have you heard what she's done? Such is a virtuous woman. And such are we as the bride of Christ called to be, to be hardworking in the ways of God rising up early, working and labouring in the ways of God and having that blessing of those that we work amongst and a praise in the gates. Well coming back to Boaz um, he said there is a kinsman nearer than me. It's true I am your near kinsman. Naomi was right how be it there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry wait this night and it shall be in the morning that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman well. Let him do the kinsman part. But if he will not, then will I do the part of the kinsman. As the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. As the Lord liveth. And so Ruth did lay down until the morning. And then she rose up before anybody could know that she was there. And Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came into the floor. And yet now everybody knows because it's written down in this book and the book's published and Boaz's secret is out and all know what Ruth did but she was a virtuous woman and Boaz was a righteous man and he would not take her to be his own until he had found out whether this nearest kinsman would take her first and he also said bring the veil that you've got hold it out and when she held it out he measured six measures of barley and gave it to her, and she went into the city. He gave her a token of his intentions to fulfil what he said. I will do the part of a kinsman if there is no other way. And we think of some words of, the, of God that when he looked and saw that there was no one who could save, his own arm brought salvation, even to the laying down of his only begotten son. Well, when Ruth get back, gets back, you can imagine the questions that Naomi has for her. Are you now engaged to Boaz? You know, who are you, my daughter? What Has this man done what he should do? And she said, these six measures of barley he gave me. He said, don't go to your mother-in-law empty. Take these. And when Naomi saw them, she would have been assured that Boaz's word was true and that he would do what he said he would do the man will not rest she says wait my daughter have patience until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today and so Boaz does not rest until he has finished the thing that day and our minds again go to the Lord Jesus Christ and we're reminded of the way in which that work of Jesus was not completed until he was able to say on the cross it is finished I've finished the work my father gave me to do and so Boaz goes up to the gate and sat him down there and behold the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke came and to whom he said oh such a man turn aside sit down here And he turned aside and sat down and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said sit ye down and they sat down and there's an emphasis there in the record, isn't there, upon sitting down, sitting down to decide something, sitting down to sort something out, and we think of the Lord Jesus Christ who sat and taught the people. And here, they were going to sort something out. Ho, oh, such a man, turn aside, sit down. We have a matter to resolve, and what is that matter? Well, we're not told this man's name. We can imagine that everybody in Bethlehem would have known it. All those elders sitting in the gate, they all knew him, but it's not recorded. The man, you see, is to be written out of the record, and another would fulfil his role. It is not necessary for us to know his name. It is, in fact, under the hand of God, deliberately not given to us. And so he says to the kinsman, Naomi, that he's come out of the country of Moab, sells a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And so we're reminded. And of course, this kinsman would have known. Oh, yes, Naomi. Yeah, and Elimelech, they went down to Moab. Oh, she's come back. Yeah, OK. And she's selling the land. Well, that land's next door to mine. And probably next door to Bo- Boaz's as well. So Boaz says, I thought to, to advertise, I thought to tell you about this, so you could buy it off the inhabitants and, and before the elders, of my people. And if you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you don't, then tell me now so that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And the man, ho such and one, said, I will redeem it. Yet yeah, that would be quite a useful bit of land for me next door to mine. I, I'm quite happy to redeem that. But there's another clause in the proposal, isn't there? Boah said, in the day that you buy that field of the hand of Naomi, you've got to also buy it of Ruth, the Moabites, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Yes, hold on a moment. You know that field? Well, the right of inheritance is through Ruth and Ruth's late husband. So if you want the field, you've also got to take Ruth. And it's not just Ruth the Israelite. No, Ruth, the Moabites, the emphasis is there, isn't it? That Gentile, you've got to marry her. Oh, hang on a second. You can imagine, ho oh, such and one saying. So there's two pieces of legislation involved here. There's a Levitical law and the law of the redeemer of the land. The law, Levitical law of raising up an inheritance and how a land should be redeemed. And they are inseparably linked in one transaction through Ruth, the Moabitess. Naomi has renounced her legal entitlement to the land in favour of Ruth. If if Naomi had been younger, she could have married someone who would raise up the title of a name to Elimelech and the land would have been given there. But she renounces it in favour of Ruth. I'm giving that land to Ruth so that there is a legal entitlement there. And if the matter was to be determined by Naomi's position alone, the land would pass out of the family's control because she has no children. So if Naomi had married and didn't have any children, then it would be passed automatically to the one who had married Naomi. But the legal rights passed to Ruth and the situation would be resolved through that means. So part two of the agreement now proposed involved the recognition that Ruth was young enough to have a family of her own and therefore make it possible for her husband's name, in theory, to be saved from dying out, and the heir would have the title to the property now being redeemed. Okay, so that's an important part of this book about the the legal entitlement and the raising up of a name. Now, Ho such an one that remains nameless says, "I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance." You redeem it, um, you're the right to yourself. I cannot do it, says a man to So instead of purchasing the land, he changes his mind because he doesn't want to marry Ruth. That may have been because he was happy to redeem and buy the land, but by marrying Ruth, he would come, come the responsibility of looking after Naomi as well. Perhaps that's why he changed his mind. Or he may have been married already with dependents and didn't want another wife. Uh, if he had a child by Ruth, it would carry a Limlech's name and the title to the land would pass out of his control. And, and if he did not have any family himself, then all of his inheritance would go under Elimelech's name if there was a, an heir through Ruth then. And he may have been put off by Ruth being a Moabite S. The nationality was stressed by Boaz, wasn't it? And stressed throughout the book. And neither Naomi or Ruth were present. There's no public denunciation of of this act. Um, And under the law, there is almost a requirement to spit at the one who refuses to be the redeemer. So remember what it said. This was a manner in former time concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe, gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore, the kinsman said to Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. It had become a custom, but it was actually under the law. The custom had changed a bit because now this was all taking place amongst the elders. There were no women present. Naomi and Ruth were not there. But back in Deuteronomy 25, we read that if a man refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house so hence the taking off the shoe and here the near kinsman represents the law of Moses the law that was unable to redeem you remember the man will not sacrifice himself for the sake of Naomi and Ruth but another would the shoe, a fitting emblem of ownership. Remember the way which God told Abraham to walk northward, southward, eastward and westward through the land, and all the land that you see, to thee will I give it. So the shoe was representative of ownership. As Abraham walking through the land. And if you take that off, you are sacrificing, you're giving up the right to that parcel of land. And so in time past, the boundaries at some point would actually be walked. By the person that had redeemed it. The change of title would be written in the land registry. And now Boa says, your witnesses, that I have bought all that was Illuminex, all that was Marlin and Chilean's, of the hand of Naomi. Moreover Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Marlon, again Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Marlon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. You are witnesses this day. And so what Boaz is saying is, I have bought, I am marrying, so that the name of the dead be not cut off and my inheritance will pass to the descendant that will come by Ruth. And therefore, he was sacrificing his own inheritance. He did not have an heir. We know that from at the end of the book. The heir was to come through Ruth. So everything he he owned would be given into the name of Elimelech or the name of Marlon. So Boaz calls on the elders of the people to be legal witnesses, that everything belongs to all the family is to be Boaz's. Ruth is to be purchased to be his wife. And he expresses that willingness to redeem under the Levitical law. And Boaz does not seek to change any of the requirements of succession. He's happy to sacrifice his own inheritance to Ruth and to Elimelech and Marlon. But it doesn't happen. That's the puzzle. It doesn't happen. If you look at the end of the book, there is no mention of Elimelech, no mention of his child, of Ruth's um, husband Marlon. In order that Elimelech's name and Marlon's name does not die out, a redeemer or a goel in the Hebrew has to be found and Boaz takes on that role. So why is it in the genealogy that these people, Elimelech, Marlon and Shilin, are all omitted from the official records? Remember, in Ruth 4, Salmon begat Boaz and Boaz begat Obed. It's Boaz's name there. And when Boaz and Ruth were married and had a son, the child was registered in Boaz's name, not Marlon's. And yet the prime purpose of the Levitical war law, so prominent in the book, was not carried out. Why not? Why not? Well, the answer is in the fact that all the people that were there in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman, Ruth, that is come to your house, make her like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. Rachel and Leah had both also had children by servant women, which were counted as their own children. Remember, of which two did build the house of Israel. And what these elders are saying is that Ruth could be like Rachel, like Leah. Okay. The second part of the answer, let your house be like the house of Phares, whom Tamar bare to Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. The elders accepted the Levitical arrangement for Ruth's benefit, but now they gave back any future offspring to Boaz to be brought up in his own family name and not Marlon's. Be like Phares whom Tamar bare. And that's a fundamental change in the terms of the Levitical law. And they were very precise in directing that their findings were according to the principles in Genesis, which preceded the Levitical law, by citing the case of the family of Phares or Phares. And by doing so, they demonstrated that grace is higher than the law. The law was added because of transgression, we're told in Galatians. And so what the law was unable to redeem, Boaz does redeem, but he redeems it under the principles. So it's not the letter of the law that is fulfilled, but the spirit of the law. And here's the Genesis principle explained. Remember that Judah married Shua, who was a Canaanite, another the Gentile, and she had three sons. Tamar, a Gentile, marries Ur, the son of um, the first son, and the Lord slew him. And so then Judah gives Tamar to the next son, Onan, and he wouldn't provide a, a son for his brother, and the Lord slew him as well. And the youngest son, Shelah, he, she, he was too young to, to marry, and so Tamar wasn't given to him. And so what she did, she acted the harlot, and she went out and she laid with Judah, their father, and bear the twins, Phares and Zara. And the children are counted not as the part of Ur that the Lord slew, or Onan, the second husband that she had, or even Sheila. They're counted as Judah's family. The sons of Judah, Ur and Onan and Sheila, which three were born unto him in the of the daughter Shua the Canaanite. Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was evil in the sight of the Lord. He slew him. Tamar, the daughter-in-law, Phares and Zerah, all the sons of Judah, were five. You see how Ur and Onan are written out. And there's a lesson for us in all of this. The elders there use a historical precedent. That it's not the spirit, sorry, the spirit, not the letter of the law, is important. And the genealogy is not through Ur, but through Judah. And in Matthew 1, Ur is written out. And in Ruth 4, the children of Boaz were not to be off the line of Marlon and Chilion or Elimelech. All those three names were written out. And that appears to be because Elimelech left the house of bread. Marlon and Chilion took wives who were idolatrous. And it is possible for us too to be blotted out of the book of life. That's the lesson here in the book of Ruth. Beware, the record is telling us, lest you too have your name written out of the book of life if you go astray and if you don't come back to the house of bread well after this event Ruth is no longer called Ruth the Moabitess. she becomes a gentile bride just like Tamar and just like Rahab and she's an example of justification by faith like Abraham just as Abraham believed God and that was counted him for righteousness know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathens through faith preached before the gospel to Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. And we become, brothers and sisters, Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so the law is not of faith but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, because the curse was weak, in order that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promises of the Spirit through faith. And so the Lord gave Ruth conception, and she bare her son. Ruth had no child in Moab, All children are God-given, and that blessing should never be taken for granted, or even expected as a right. The woman thanked God for a Redeemer. Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee, Naomi, this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto you a restorer of your life, a nourisher of your old age, for... Your daughter, Ruth-in-law, Ruth in law, daughter in law, Ruth, which loves thee, which is better than thee than seven sons, has borne him. And so they encouraged Naomi don't think about your dead sons. You've got a daughter in law that is better than having had seven sons, because look what she's borne you a wonderful grandson. And from that grandson, from Obed, will come Jesse, the father of David, the king. And from David will come the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they called his name Obed. A son born to Naomi. Who was it who named him? The women, her neighbours, gave the name. That's unusual and significant. Obed means servant. And the child is to serve two families. Naomi's and Boaz and Ruth's. And service is to be honoured. And we think about the way in which Jesus is the suffering servant, the suffering saviour, and that servant passages in Isaiah all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we need to rush ahead a little bit. As we read through the story of Ruth, there are important applications that jump out for us. We note that it's God's plan to call people from amongst the Gentiles to his way of salvation. We note that Ruth was a a Gentile. A phrase repeated of her, and many may have discriminated against her, but God loved her heart. He knew what was in her. God saw her as an important part of his plan for her life, and it culminated in her becoming part of the line of the Lord Jesus. And God's plan often uses people who might be considered by some to be unimportant, unimpressive from man's perspective. But remember what Paul wrote to Corinthians. God's name is made... His strength is made perfect in our weakness. God calls those things which are not as though they were. God uses the little things to accomplish great plans. And what amazing plan we had in this account in Ruth. A series of little things, all adding up to important pieces of God's big plan, of God's jigsaw, if you like. God intended for Ruth to be part of that story, the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he pulled together such events as a famine. Naomi moving to Moab. They're returning to Bethlehem. Boaz's bloodline just happened to be. And many other events used to ensure that Ruth could be part of his plan. On their own, perhaps insignificant pieces of detail. But put together, we see the hand of God at work in the life of Naomi and in the life of Ruth, to bring about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does that same thing in our lives today. He can use us. They may be small things, but they're all part of God's master plan, of God's big plan, so that big jigsaw, of which we may be just a small part, can come to fruition. God has provided a redeemer to rescue us from our sin, And Boaz, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were in need of being redeemed as a result of our sinful natures. We too were empty. Just as Ruth must have felt when her husband died. Just as Naomi was empty when she came back and devastated that she'd lost everything. Our sin, our sin renders us empty and desolate and spiritually. But Jesus has redeemed us. He's paid the price. He has rescued us from the penalty of our sin through his death and resurrection. And so in summary, these are the types in the book of Ruth. We've looked at some of them in our first talk, but a Naomi left Bethlehem. Ruth married into the household. Naomi in bitterness returns. Ruth works and finds a husband. Ruth is given a token of betrothal with the corn that Boaz gave her. There is another near kinsman and Boaz spreads his wings over Ruth and takes his name. And a redeemer is born, initially Obed, who means serving or servant. And he is a restorer of Naomi's life. And those equal the way in which Israel was scattered from the land because of unbelief. That Ruth equals the Gentile calling that begins, and the way in which Israel returns in unbelief to the land, and the way in which a Gentile bride now makes herself ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. The jesters, Boaz, gave Ruth a token, so Jesus gives us tokens of his covenant. And tomorrow we will break bread and drink wine in memory of that covenant, by these very tokens. There is another near kinsman, and the law is that near kinsman, unable of itself to save, but which pointed forward to the work of Jesus. Boaz spreads his wings over Ruth, and God calls out the Gentiles for his name. A redeemer, Jesus the son of promise the suffering servant of Isaiah and Obed a restorer of Naomi's life and Jesus who will restore the faithful industrial to himself as set out in Romans chapter 11 from the character of Ruth we learn that she was devoted to and loved Naomi and demonstrated that love for God through the work that she constantly did committed to stay with Naomi and would not turn back proved to be hardworking and supported Naomi and herself, keen to listen to all that Naomi taught her about the law and about a redeemer. She believed in the God of Israel and showed that belief by actions. She is a type then of the bride of Christ of which we, by grace, are a part. book of Ruth. Um, This is an amazing uh, story that we have in the account of the Bible and please note that I put in here reference to free Bible images so the pictures that I'm using are, are free share and they're available from this site but I have to put that acknowledgement on the beginning of the slides. So of necessity there's going to be some overlap between the two and I'm hoping that Today, as we look at the lives of Naomi and Ruth, by separating the lessons out, we can perhaps draw out different lessons from their two lives. So, in the first of our two talks, from bitterness to joy, we're going to be looking at Naomi and we're going to be looking at the way in which the Almighty had dealt very bitterly with her. That's uh, her own words. Uh, and then the changes which at last brought her to joy. In the second talk, we're gonna be looking at uh, Ruth, um, the way in which she was brought up in Moab and the way in which she became that Gentile bride and uh, the way in which God redeemed, not just Ruth, but also Naomi as well. So the purpose of, of the book, let's just consider that for a moment. There are a number of books with genealogies, But the book of Ruth is the only one with a genealogy at the end of the book and like the book of Judges the last chapter perhaps summarizes the book in the book of Judges we're familiar with that phrase every man did that which was right in his own eyes so too perhaps the last few verses of the book of Ruth Ruth, give us the real reason for the book being written and we're going to look at that in more detail in the second talk so the question is who is the author of the book of Ruth Well, I suppose that it could have been Ruth. We read in that fourth chapter the way in which Salmon begat Boaz, Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. So some have suggested the author might have been Samuel. But as the book begins in the days when the judges ruled, and we know that Samuel was the last of the judge, then I don't think it's likely to have been written by him. In chapter 4, it states, now this was the manner in former time in Israel. So it's looking back, isn't it? And most likely, it was written about 100 to 150 years after the events of the book. And I'm going to suggest quite strongly that it was probably during the reign of David. And otherwise, we would have had David's brothers mentioned as part of the genealogy. So David has been singled out, and yet he's not referred to in Ruth as David the king. So could it be possibly have been written by David himself? There's there's quite an interesting verse I'll draw your attention to in Chronicles and the 28th chapter, when David is talking about the building of the temple. And he says that the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. And although he's there specifically talking about the plans of the temple that Solomon would later build, David also understood that those literal plans had a pattern of future things and that God had made a promise to him of speaking to him of his house for a great while to come. So if he did that with the pattern of the temple, isn't it possible also that in revealing the story of Ruth that David may have understood that that too was a pattern That was being outworked. We're going to have a look at that pattern um, this afternoon. So I want to put the book in its wider context for a moment. So when we look at the previous books we've got the book of Joshua and in the book of Joshua of course we see Israel conquering Canaan but we see also that it is a pattern or a type of Jesus's work of conquering sin and death so that we can possess the kingdom. And we've got links to Hebrews that, that give us the keys to unlock that, uh, that type or that pattern. In the book of Judges, we know that phrase, that which was right in their own eyes, is a shadow perhaps of the times when the Lord Jesus Christ came and found that the true shepherds of Israel were not doing their jobs. They were doing that which was right in their own eyes. So in the book of Ruth, we see that Israel turn away from God and learn that God calls individuals from amongst the Gentiles to serve him. And then later in the books of Samuel, we learn about the establishment of the God's kingdom under David and Solomon. And of course, that points forward to the re-establishment of the kingdom at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. So an overview of the book, we've got the historical account, which also shadows God's redemptive work, as we've seen. In Elimelech, I'm going to suggest, and his two sons, we see Israel going astray, leaving their house and going into Gentile areas. And we see the corruption of Israel and Judah, which brings about sin and death, as epitomised by Elimelech and his two sons. And in contrast, we have faithful Naomi, and we see how her suffering is turned to joy and salvation, And so she represents, I think, the remnant of Israel who return to their land and eventually learn to recognise their redeemer and king, just as Naomi learns that Boaz is the redeemer for her and, and Ruth. In The Virtues of Ruth, we're going to look at in the next talk, we see the characteristics required by the true bride of Christ. So lessons for us as the Gentile bride brought into a covenant relationship with our Lord. And in the humility of the rich Boaz, who humbles himself to work in the field, we see the true Redeemer, as opposed to the law which could not save, which represented the near kinsman. And of course, tomorrow, we remember the true Redeemer. And in my exhortation in nearest tomorrow, that's where I'm proposing that we go. We see principles then throughout of God's way of redemption, the foundation of God's work in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we begin, as the book begins, in the day of the Judges. It came to pass in the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so these images represent some of the more well-known events of the book of Judges. We've got there um, Gideon blowing the trumpet. We've got Samson killing the, and wrestling with the lion. And and we've perhaps got Deborah in the fields. But let's move on. Here's an idea of when that time of the judges may have been and when Naomi and Ruth and Boaz may have fitted in. I've underlined Ehud defeating Eglon, king of Moab, because I think that's a significant time of the judges. And I'm wondering, and still it's under debate, we can't be certain what time period Naomi and Ruth and Boaz uh, fit in. But I'm wondering whether it might have fitted in a little bit earlier perhaps in between Ehud and Deborah. What's interesting about the times of the judges is, is that we've got there judges that are raised up um, to defeat Israel's enemy. So let's have a look at this. I believe it's been said that the book of the judges is the book of the four S cycles. First of all we have sin so Israel committed sins. They turned away from God. They were suffering because God brought the nations around them upon them. So that's what we read of in the book of Judges. It's mainly the opposing nations that are brought upon Israel. But there are other sorts of suffering. And, and Ruth introduces us to another, that the fact that there was a famine. That was another suffering that God brought upon them. But the whole point of the, of the suffering was to make them turn back to God in supplication. Because when they turned back to God, then God raised up a judge to bring salvation to his people. So God uses suffering to bring about supplication. And I think that's what we're going to see in the book of, of Ruth as well. Just remember for a moment what God told Moses back in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand for to do, because of the wickedness of thy doings. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave to you. The Lord shall smite you with a consumption, with a fear, with sword and blasting and mildew. And the earth that is, sorry, the heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. And the Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. So so there we have in those last two verses a picture of a drought, a picture of famine in the land, of dried up earth that is hard like iron. And the rain is just the dust that is blown about the land. So there was a famine in the land. And that reminds us perhaps of how Abraham and later Jacob went down to Egypt in times of famine how God sent um, Jacob's son Joseph ahead of the family to preserve life. So God had brought a punishment upon the nation of Israel in the days of Ruth, in the days when the judges ruled, due to their sinfulness, and they had not yet turned back to God in supplication. Then we're introduced to a certain man, a certain man whose name was Elimelech. And Elimelech means, my God is king. And that should remind us of what was happening in the times of the judges, how every man did that which was right, and how at the end of the judges, Israel asked for a king. Let us think then about the fact that Elimelech didn't live up to his name. By leaving Bethlehem, he left God. He turned his back on God. And we can ask ourselves the question by way of exhortation, what is the name that we live up to? Because we are name bearers too. We have adopted the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is the saviour. And we bear that name. And do we live up to it? Well, as I said, Israel rejected God as being king in the days of Samuel, in the days of the last judge and uh, God gave them Saul, first of all, and then David. But this certain man left the house of bread. He left not just Bethlehem, but he also left the nation, God's chosen nation. And he sought bread amongst the Gentiles instead of recognising God's punishment and instead of turning back to God in prayer and supplication. So as head of the house, he has prime responsibility, doesn't he? They only went to sojourn, but note, they ended up staying. And for us, when we leave God, when we turn away from God, when we go into the world, then we too might not have thought that we would be going eternally. We thought we might have just sojourned. Let's just have a taste of the world, but we may end up staying if we're not careful. Because once we're in the world, once we're back in the pleasures of sin for a season, it's hard to find a way back from the world. And this passage from James perhaps keeps that in mind. James exhorts us to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And I was reminded of uh, of something that Brother John Roberts told us when I was only 16 years of age uh, at a youth gathering. He described a game that children play. The game is... There are pedals on the road, and the game is to see how close you can stay to the pedal without getting splashed by the cars and the lorries and the buses that are going past on the road. And as the car or bus approaches, you jump back in order to not be splashed by the water. That's a dangerous game to play. And if you've played it, more than likely you, like me, has been splashed by the water from the pedal and got a soaking. It illustrates the way in which, if we're not careful, we can try to play with what the world offers, thinking it's not going to affect us until it overwhelms us and splashes us completely. So James says, don't play the game. Keep right away from those things that the world will spot us with. Let's try and keep our garments clean. And we can do so through the work of our Redeemer. Well, this man was of Bethlehem, Judah, and I'm sure we all know that Bethlehem means house of bread, but Judah means praise. So here was Elimelech taking his family away from the house of bread and the house of praise to a, because of the famine. In the house of bread, there was no praise to God, and so God had withheld the reins. Not only was there a natural famine of shortage of food, but as we're reminded in the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the bread of life and the bread of life for the Jews in Israel was the word of God and they neglected it they turned their back on it and so there was a famine of the word of God too Israel had forsaken that word and so were spiritually starving as well as naturally hungry so they went to sojourn he and his wife and his two sons Here's a passage from the end of Ruth, where we remember that Naomi was selling a parcel of ground. And also in the second chapter, when they returned to Bethlehem, Naomi dwelt with her mother-in-law. What that tells us is that, that when they left Bethlehem to go to Moab, they only went for a short period of time. At least that's what they thought. And they hadn't sold all their land before going. And they hadn't even sold the house that they had in Bethlehem. They intended coming back. And so they go off to sojourn. What else do we know about about Elimelech and about uh, about Naomi? Well, we know that Elimelech's kinsman was Boaz and Boaz was a very wealthy man. And it's quite likely then that his kinsman, Elimelech, was also a wealthy man. He took down with him Sufficient wealth for him to be able to at least sojourn in Moab and feed his family. And more than likely, by the fact that they ended up staying, probably bought a portion of land, probably not in the city of Moab, outside of Moab, and enough money to buy that land, to buy a house and to live there. And it became more and more comfortable for them. So let's think about the country of Moab. There's the journey, it's not that far, at least it's not that far if you're driving or if you are able to go on a horse, but to walk that distance is quite a trek. But they thought, obviously thought it was worth it, and I've already intimated that Elimelech, as head of the house, probably was the one mainly responsible for making that decision, and that Naomi followed with her two sons, whatever he decided. But it goes on to say that they continued there. So they continued in Moab, implying that they stayed there. And of course, we do know that they stayed for some time. And so I think the family there represents a type of scattered Israel who are away from God, not only spiritually, but also literally, going into a strange land. And they're there until God gathers them back. Them back. And Naomi, she represents that remnant called to God's covenant and promises that returns to the land. And like Israel today in the land, they have returned in unbelief. So Naomi, in a sense, returns in unbelief that God is working her life, fails to see and is therefore quite unhappy when she comes back, as we shall see but some more about the country of Moab. Let's think about the origin of it. Remember Lot's daughters when they were rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the way in which they went to a cave with their father? Here it is in Genesis chapter 19. They made their father drunk with wine and lay with him. And thus they, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bear a son and called his name Moab. And the same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the meaning of Moab is one derived from a father, and that's literally how Moab came into existence, from her father, from Lot. And it also tells us that it's one born after the flesh. What else do we know about Moab? Well, Moab tells us a lot of the problems that were existing there. There was Baal worship at Peor. Do you remember this incident from Numbers 25? When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And thousands died as a result of that, when we look at Numbers 25. So they were worshippers of false gods of Baal, and as such, child sacrifice was something that was very familiar in Moab. It's, it's being suggested that every firstborn child would be offered to the god as a sacrifice. Just imagine then living in those circumstances, living in a time when, when you soon as you conceived a child, you knew that that child was going to be given to this god. And perhaps that was why Ruth and Orpah didn't have children. They didn't want to lose their child to be sacrificed to this God. Well, there were more problems with Moab, more than just the sort of sacrifice of gods. The children of Israel served Eglon for 18 years until God raised up Ehud as a deliverer. So the people of Moab were brought against Israel because of Israel's idolatry because Israel turned away and they became in servitude to the king of Moab to Eglon and then Ehud of course delivered them um, pushing his dagger into this the belly of this very big man and there were more problems with Israel, with Moab God had decreed that an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their 10th generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. So God had decreed that Israel shouldn't have anything to do with Moab. And Ruth 1 may have occurred just over 20 years after he had killed Eglon. Just imagine, you know, you've been at war with the country. The country has overcome you. You've been in servitude to them with them. For 18 years, and now within 20 years, Elimelech is considering taking his family to this hostile place. So what was he thinking? Didn't he see the signs? And did Naomi have a choice? So some of these are things that we, we can't answer. Of course, Elimelech did have a choice. Naomi may not have had a choice. She just followed Her husband. And we think of the shepherds of Israel, blind leaders of the blind, and the way in which Jesus told how both of them would fall into a ditch. Well, there were certainly problems in living in Moab. Yes, they may have had bread, they may have had food, but the psalmist writes, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And we need to use our imagination for a moment and imagine what it was like for Elimelech, for Naomi, and for their two sons, living in a land that was godless. How could they sing the Lord's song in that strange land? How old were the sons? Well, they may have been as young as only 10 years old when they went there. Just imagine bringing up children in that sort of situation. How can you teach them what is right and what is true and about the one true God, When all around you, everybody's worshipping the Baal God. So bringing up children in a strange land is, of course, not easy. And then the child sacrifice that we mentioned, the lack of morals, the fact that they were outsiders may have meant that they were seen as being different, ostracised. And then how long did they live in Moab? Well, it seems from the account that it might only have been 10 years. Or was it 10 years after the sons married how long before the sons did marry before they found the attraction of the local women and I think the sons were married for 10 years before they died and the famine in Bethlehem ended indicating a return of the people towards God so let's just think a bit more about Naomi and the example that we have of Naomi living in a strange land, in a strange country, what that was like. Just imagine how hard it was to keep God's laws in that environment. How that every Sabbath day when they were in Israel, it was par for the course. Friday evening and Saturday, no work. The preparation so that there was a, a, a sitting down to, to eat together on Friday, no work would be done. It was a sabbath of rest, the day in which they would remember God. Not so in a strange land, when perhaps Friday evening and Saturday evening were times of merriment and laughter and it could be heard even from those outside of the city. And then every feast day, every Passover, every feast of the first fruits, every day of atonement, every feast of tabernacles, when the males of Israel should have attended special Passover festivals or first fruits festivals and so on. And you might perhaps imagine Naomi asking the question, well, there's a holiday coming up. Shall we go back to Bethlehem and keep the feast? Only a few miles away from Jerusalem. And possible reluctance on the part of the sons or even the husband to keep those feasts, to keep the Sabbath, keep God's laws, living in this strange land, they began to adopt the ways of that land of Moab and it became part of their everyday life. But an example was being set and we know that from the confession of Ruth when they returned to Bethlehem. Your God will be my God, says Ruth. She had learned something from Naomi's good example, that despite what was going on in Moab, Naomi had kept her faith in God, had tried to keep the principles of God's ways. And Ruth had come to learn of the loving nature of the God of Israel compared to the gods of Canaan, where all the time that the nation of Moab was in victorious, like in the times of, times of Eglon, Everything flowed. There was lots of merriment and laughter and plenty of food from the Israelites that were in servitude. But not so in the days, perhaps, when uh, Elimelech and Naomi went down to Moab. Perhaps it wasn't so good because their king had been killed. And, And now perhaps they needed to offer more sacrifices to the god of Baal to appeal to his help and to his support, so that they could defeat the Israelites again. That may have been what was going on. So what's in a name? Well, let's just think about the name of some of the others. In this second verse, we're told of Elimelech, Mal, and Chilian, and they were Ephrathites of Bethlehem Judah. What does that mean? Well, Ephrata means ash heap or place of fruitfulness. Remember Bethlehem Ephrata? Bethlehem, the place of fruitfulness, sometimes also a place of an ash heap. Elimelech, as we said, is my god is king. Naomi, pleasantness. And perhaps that tells us a little bit about her character, that she was known as a very pleasant person. Whilst Marlon means sickly, perhaps due to some ailment that he had as a child. And Chilion, pining equally. Unhappy childhood, perhaps, for him. And Naomi becomes devastated by two types of loss. Firstly, Elimelech dies, doesn't he? And she was left with the two sons. Uh, he'd come to Moab to find life, to find food and a home. But instead, he found a grave secondly she was unable to return due to her sons no at this time they hadn't died but her sons had taken them wives of the women of moab how did she feel about that surely she would much rather that they'd taken wives from bethlehem people of a belief the same as hers and it says then that they dwelled there about 10 years And I think that implies that after their marriage, they dwelt in Moab for 10 years. So they may have been down. Naomi may have been in Moab for about 20 years before she returned. Orpah, she means gazelle or the back of the neck or stiff-necked. And and we'll come to her in a moment. Whereas Ruth, compassion, good-natured and kind. And in the second talk... We're going to be look at that, looking at that in more detail. So somebody's just come on and hasn't muted. Thank you. Like uh, Naomi um, and her bitterness. Right, Marlon and Shillian died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and a husband. Call me Mara, she says, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. And the emphasis there is very bitterly. Almost perhaps we could think of her blaming God or at least asking the question, why has God allowed this to happen to me? Why has this happened? Naomi recognised the hand of the Lord was upon her and as she and Elimelech had sinned, leaving Israel, they had suffered. And before salvation could come, there was a need for true supplication. To, to recognise God's hand upon them was for a reason and to turn back to God in order for him to save them. But Naomi wasn't quite there yet. She was bitter at the way in which her life had turned out. So she arose to return. Um, In verse 6, she heard that the Lord had visited the people and given them bread. There was nothing left for her in Moab. Um, It was a place of death in contrast to the house of bread where she'd left. And so she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country from Moab. And the hand of the Lord was against her. And on the journey back, she says to her daughters-in-law, turn again, my daughters, will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb? And he emphasizes it twice, she says it to her daughters-in-law, turn again, go back, my daughters, go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. And then at the end, the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And we know that Orpah does turn back, doesn't she? She'd been given a choice and she chose to turn back to where she'd left. The three women had set off together. It was going to be a long journey. It was by now late summer and the roads were not safe. Orpah turns back, back to Moab, and the words of Jesus come to mind. No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. But Ruth clung to her. She claved to her. She, she embraced her. She clung to her. And Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. There is an implication in those words of Naomi that at one point, Orpah had been a worshipper of the one true God, but now she's turned back to her people and to her gods. And so it is possible, isn't it, for us, who are worshippers of the one true God, to turn back to the world from which we have come. But in contrast, Ruth says, don't urge me, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be married. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death me from you that tells us a lot about Ruth but it also tells us a lot about Naomi the character of Naomi had had such a strong influence upon Ruth that she wanted to stay with her the God of Naomi had had such a strong influence on her that despite the fact that she'd lost her father-in-law and lost her own husband and lost her brother-in-law she still wanted God to be her God wanted to live where Naomi lived, was prepared to die and be buried there. She didn't want to go back. And perhaps that is because she recognised the iniquity of Moab, the sinfulness of that place, the horribleness of living in a place in fear of the God of that place, in fear of the people who worshipped that God, in fear of those false priests who would take your child And offer it as a human sacrifice to that God. Who would want to live in a place like that? Well, it was a long journey home. And we need to imagine, as they continued, what might have been said and what might not have been said. Each woman, in their own quiet way, thinking about their lives. Naomi, thinking about how full her life had been when she had gone in the opposite direction when she travelled from Bethlehem to Moab and now she was coming back empty and perhaps also being amazed by the effect that she'd had on Ruth why does this s insist on coming with me what is it that she has seen what is it that I have forgotten wondering what was in store for Naomi on her return and likewise Ruth wondering what the future might hold. How Naomi had changed from the pleasant, perhaps carefree wife that she'd once been, to now a bitter person, unhappy with a lot. And so they arrive in Bethlehem. And the whole town appears to have turned out to see them, but soon their initial joy was quietened. Naomi had to tell them of her losses, how her husband had died and her sons too. It's interesting that we're not told how they died. We're not told whether the Lord smote them with an illness, with one of those things that we read of in Deuteronomy 28. We don't know whether they may have been attacked by people in Moab in order to gain their lands. We don't know whether they might have been poisoned by the people there. What we do know is that whatever Elimelech and Naomi had had when they went down to Moab, they had completely lost. They weren't able to sell that house that they had in Moab and get the money back for it. It was probably taken by the townspeople. Their lands were confiscated. They returned with nothing. And that is evident from what Naomi has to say. Naomi's friends were aghast to see how much she had changed. This young, happy person that they remember when she went. This pleasant person. The years were now etched on her face. Can this really be Naomi? They asked. And Naomi had had her long journey to dwell on that. And on her loss of life in Moab. Don't call me Naomi don't call me pleasant call me Mara bitter the years have been unkind to me I have lost everything. Well there's a question there isn't there had she really lost everything she certainly lacked the appreciation of God's hand at work in her life she said that the Lord had brought her back empty but he hadn't had he She still had Ruth. She still had her life. She still had her health and many people in her hometown who cared about her. She still had a house and a land in Bethlehem. And sometimes we fail to recognise God's providential care in our lives. When things go wrong, that's all we can home in on. But Naomi did have strengths. She was faithful in return if she could have stayed in Moab. She was kind and unselfish to her daughters-in-law, giving them the opportunity to return, despite the fact that she probably would have craved their comfort if they'd stayed with her. She was grateful to Ruth. She was a loving mother-in-law. She was wise in her counsel. She was protective and she was patient. All of those things come out in the story of Naomi. And she was unselfish. Later on, we read of the way in which she was willing to sell her land in order to secure a husband for Ruth. In every situation, we have two ways to view our lives. We can either believe that life is not fair, in which case we're on the road to bitterness and unhappiness, or we can accept the hand of God in our lives and that he knows what is best for us. Choose out the path for me is the words of one of our hymns. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, says God in Isaiah 55. And here in Job, we remember the words of Job when his family were taken away from him. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, says Job. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God knows what is best for us. Well, eventually... As we shall see, Naomi allows Ruth to clean in Boaz's fields. She advises Ruth on how to claim Boaz's protection. She sold her land to invoke the law of redemption. And she's instrumental in enabling Ruth to marry. And her husband's inheritance is to be carried on by Ruth. She assumes the care of Ruth's child, her grandchild, and, and got there a lesson for grandparents and the way in which how much of an influence grandparents can have on children. And I'm sure that Naomi had an influence on Ruth's child Obed. Naomi eventually had a plan, and it was God's plan. She'd worked out that God had a a plan with her, and the plan, of course, worked. It was amazing. It worked amazingly. Both women could now look forward to a comfortable, happy, and godly future as a result of the Redeemer that they'd found. Both women also knew that they would be well provided for under God's wings of salvation. We'll look at that more in the second talk. And Naomi takes the child joyfully in her arms. The story ends with the best news, isn't it? Naomi, who'd once asked to be called bitter, and now joyfully holds her grandson born to Ruth and Boaz in her arms. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Interesting, isn't it? That it wasn't Boaz and Naomi who named him, the women in Bethlehem named him. And it's the Bible's way of saying they lived happily ever after. Let's just come to a, draw our thoughts to a conclusion with this list of types in the book of Ruth. We've remembered the way in which Elimelech and Naomi left Bethlehem, Naomi's example and belief in God, the way in which Ruth married into the household. And Naomi in bitterness and loss returns. And eventually that bitterness is turned to joy when a redeemer is found. And then we've got the types. We've got Israel scattered from the land. Israel, God's covenant people. Gentiles called to be the bride. And Israel's return in unbelief to the land eventually will be turned to joy when they look on their redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and repent when God pours out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem that spirit of grace and of supplication. And some lessons from the life of Naomi. She was perhaps led away from godly friends and family into the enemy territory of Moab. Perhaps she didn't have any choice over that. But her godly influence on her family was tested in Moab, especially when her sons married foreign wives. But she maintained her belief and became a good example to them. She made sure that the young widows who followed her had a choice to go back to their gods. God wants people to choose to worship him, doesn't he? She returned to the promised land after her husband's death in unbelief of his providential care, but she did have times of weakness, but ultimately she learned that God is in control. And we too, we may have doubts or even possible bitterness. But we need to work through those things and trust that God knows what is best for us too. Naomi was always a caring person, a protective person of her family. She looked out for the interests of those in her care. And she was bitter with God for a time, perhaps because he'd given her the care of those that were then taken away from her by death. She talked to and listened to Ruth and took an active part in the process of her and Boaz coming together and a redeemer, restoring her life to happiness. So in conclusion, Naomi was bitter when she thought of her own life. But that changed to joy when she started to help Ruth. And that's key for us too, isn't it? In our bitterness, it's very self-centered. We look inwardly. As soon as we start looking out for other people, that bitterness can turn to joy for us too. Naomi, in representing Israel, is the root from which we grow as Gentiles. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, says Paul to the Romans, lest he also spare not thee. So we have a wonderful hope and we can look forward to rejoicing in the kingdom when Jew and Gentile will combine to praise Emmanuel's name forever. Thank you for listening. Thank you.